new. It's still rather theoretical, speculative, and way, way too long. So I'm going to have to kind of slice and dice and chop things out um, as I go along. Um, this is Histories of the Ephemeral, writing on music in the late Mughal world. Go away. Right. Okay. For a moment, it grew. Tentative heart unfolding in the fleeting heat of a fugitive sun. Plucked, pasted, pressed between leaves, no longer growing, but a specimen to be catalogued, a sacrifice in search of beauty, anatomy of a faded rose. For a moment, it flew, delicate wings vibrating in the tender breath of a summer night. Prisoned, pinioned, pinned on a board, no longer flying, but a species to be classified, a sacrifice in search of science, anatomy of a crumbling moth. For a moment, we knew. Wondrous minds discovering in a single note unfathomable truth. Caught, captioned, words on a page, no longer knowing, but a discourse to be analysed, a sacrifice in search of distance, anatomy of a moment gone. How do we write histories of the ephemeral, of affective and sensory experience, of devotional states and journeys, of the live performance of music and dance, of the tangible yet transient texture of the experiential moment? More specifically, how do we write them for Indian pasts? Can experiential moments even have histories? Surely the momentary is the very definition of something that lies beyond history, beyond historical method. Isn't that part of its bittersweet pleasure that once over it forever lies just beyond our reach? And if we could access those moments in time and note their changing textures as season followed season, what would they tell us? I'm not by any means going to answer all or even any of these questions and certainly not to anyone's satisfaction in the next uh, hopefully less than an hour. Um, this paper marks the beginning of something new, um, though built on the foundations of the last five years I've spent on my European Research Council project with my ear pressed to the margins of manuscripts, listening for echoes between the lines. My subject is music, Hindustani or North Indian classical music to be precise the courtly chamber music that was classicized and cultivated by the male elite of the Mughal world, Hindu, Muslim, and neither, from the time of Akbar through the colonial period and out the other side, by which time it had been appropriated as a national music by a different elite altogether, the Western-educated Hindu upper class, upper caste urban elites of the modern Indian nation. My time frame is the roughly century of transition from Mughal to British rule, from the death of the Emperor Muhammad Shah in 1748, the last Mughal ruler who maintained the state in a semblance of its original order and glory, at least until Nadir Shah would pay to that in 1739, to the imposition of British crown rule in 1858 after the Indian uprising. There are a number of reasons for focusing on this period of North Indian music history. The first is that it's a critical period in Indian history generally, particularly for debates as to the nature of colonial knowledge projects. These have in the past made rather lighter use than they might of early modern Indian language sources, among which I include Persian. This is especially true of the half century during which Shah Alam II was on the throne, 1759 to 1806. And despite the flurry of wonderful new work on the 18th century that has recently been done using the Indian language archives, this situation continues with some honorable exceptions. The second reason is that this period of music history is very understudied, even more so in a fashion that would link musical developments to social, intellectual, economic, and political change. The lacuna has been patched only fragmentarily with studies of European writings, such as William Jones's utterly tedious on the musical modes of the Hindus, paintings, colonial era publications in modern vernaculars, old songs in the contemporary repertoire, and the elaborate oral histories and genealogies of the Guranas, the household guilds 
of hereditary musicians that over centuries preserved the Hindustani musical system. The oral histories in particular turn out to be less spurious than you might think, on occasion coming surprisingly close to much earlier archival records. But the manuscript materials for the period 1700 to 1860 have continued to lie in the archives largely untouched. Finally, the third reason simple, the wealth, variety and sheer freshness of these materials turn out to be simply astonishing. In attempting to breathe life back into the embedded histories of musical experience in the late local world, there have been two primary obstructions that have made the ephemeral even harder to grasp hold of. The first has been a source issue that has, of course, turned out to be an imaginary issue or perhaps an issue of lack of imagination. Scholars of Indian music have long rightly highlighted the 2,000-year-old tradition of writing on Indian music in Sanskrit, known as Sangeeta Shastra, albeit with the caveat that Sangeeta Shastra was always in an indirect and occasionally hostile relationship to real-world practice. In line with Sheldon Pollock's argument about the so-called death of Sanskrit, however, uh, there has been a growing consensus, um, and our archival work confirms this, that this written tradition attenuated in the north around 1700, while our older treatises continued to be copied, circulated and read in the north in the 18th century, and of course there was much new material in Sanskrit going on elsewhere. There was little to no production of new Sangeeta Shastras in Sanskrit in the north until it was revived as the language of musicology by reformers in the late 19th century. In the intervening years, the consensus is that musical knowledge was transmitted not in writing, but via oral, oral means within houses of hereditary musicians who were illiterate or to whom written musical discourse was an irrelevance. This alleged shift of musical knowledge into the oral oral domain around 1700, coupled with ethnomusicologists' overwhelming interests not in written knowledge, but in the embodied and performed, has created a widespread assumption that there were few, if any, writings on Hindustani music between 1700 and the sudden appearance of printed vernacular treatises in the late 19th century. This is, of course, point blank wrong. There is, in fact, an enormous, rich archive of writing on music in a number of old and new genres for the period 1700 to 1860 in North Indian languages, particularly in Persian and early forms of Hindi, Urdu, Braj, Dakni, Rechta, Hindustani, etc. Without even making much of an effort, and restricting our geography strictly to the Doab, our source database already runs to over 300 unique entries. Literally less than a handful of these writings have previously been noted, let alone used. Furthermore, many of them were written by or for the very hereditary musicians we have written off as illiterate. This substantial archive dramatically changes what is possible to say about the history of music in North India. What in fact seems to have happened to the Sanskrit Sangeeta Shastra tradition is this. In the mid-17th century, as part of a major effort to systematize and standardize the elite Indian music performed in the Mughal domains for an expanding cohort of patrons with aspirations to connoisseurship, the major works of Sanskrit Sangeeta Shastra relevant to the particular Hindustani tradition's privileged Mughal court were all translated into two emergent languages of power, Persian, and the courtly register of Hindi, Brajpasha. Most prominently, these seminal Sanskrit works included Kshemakarna's Ragamala system of 1570, Damodara Sangita Darpana, about 1625, with its hugely influential Hanuman Mat Ragamala series, Ahobala's revolutionary Sangita Parijada of about 1650, and the translation from Hindavi into Persian of Rajaman Singh's Malakutuhala. The foundational Sangeeta Ratnakara of Shangadeva, written in Dolatabad around 1250, had already been translated three times into Persian, as well as 16th century vernaculars, and pundits had long produced Sanskrit Sangeeta Shastras for various Muslim rulers, including the Mughals. These 17th century Persian and Braj translations did not dumb down the Sanskrit tradition. Mirza Roshan Zamir's translation of Ahobala's Sangeeta Parijata, for example, is without question one of the most remarkable Persian translations of and commentaries on a Sanskrit scientific work in all of Indian history. Instead, the Sangeeta Shastra tradition itself shifted wholesale from its Sanskrit vehicle into two new, more accessible languages of transmission, two open epistemologies that continued and thrived in parallel all the way through until 1857 due to their ability to incorporate changes on the ground 
while maintaining their Sanskritic underpinnings. The Persian Sangeeta Shastra tradition was palimpsestic, and here we have the most insane diagram. That is to say, each text was formed of a series of layered Persian prototypes going back to a Sanskrit original, with each layer repeating much of the previous layer's content verbatim, but also augmenting them with large and small digressions on current practice in the places first authorised by the earliest Persian prototype. So, for example, the fifth chapter of the 1675 Tofat al-Hind is modelled in large part on the Sangeeta Darpana, but in areas of digression previously authorised by Persian prototypes on vocal genres, instruments and musicians' biographies, the author cites extensively from the Rag Darpan, which itself is a palimpsest of the Sangeet chapter from the Aini Akbari plus the Manaka Tuhala, and of course the Aini Akbari is modelled on the Sangeet of Ravnakara with a Ragamala inserted from a different Sanskrit source, and there are some other sources in there as well. This palimpsestic tradition of writing new Sangeeta Shastras in Persian and North Indian vernaculars on the model of old ones, but updated with whatever was new in musical development, continued into the 18th and 19th centuries, with the Tufar al-Hind itself becoming one of the major prototypes. Several treatises written on this model between 1719 and 1820 were then returned to as classic prototypes in their own right, when looked back upon with nostalgia across the wastelands of the Gharar of 1857-8. Nawab Mazhar Khan's Khulasad al-Esh, written for the Emperor Shah Alam II in 1798. Khushal Khan Kalawan's three versions of the Rag Darshan, produced in Braj for Maratha General Raja Rao Rambha in 1800, in Persian for Nizam Sikandarja Asafjah III in 1808, and in mixed Persian and Hindavi for the famous Hyderabadi courtesan Ma Chanda in 1815, and Radha Mohan Sendas's Shongita Tarongo, published in Bengali in 1818. And those of you who know Richard Williams will know that he has done the work on this text. One might add to this list Augustus Willard's 1834 treatise on the music of Hindustan for the Nawab of Banda, which follows the same epistemology but in English. Substantial parts of the Tufat were also cited in Ghulam Raza's Usul al-Magmata Yasafi, written for Nawab Asafuddullah of Lucknow in 1793, but with its first chapter produced initially for the assistant British resident, Richard Johnson. But the Usul is more correctly a palimpsest of the Shams al of 1698, an independent translation of Damodar Sangeet Darpana, written for Aurangzeb Alamgir by his chief musician, Rasparas Khan Kalawand the first practicing hereditary musician verifiably to have written a work on music in the Mughal period. Another older genre to thrive in new ways in this period was the ragamala, or garland of musical modes depicted as heroes, heroines, and deities, both in its painted and textual form, <coughs> verse and prose, in many languages. And this would be an entire study in itself, so I won't address it here. Suffice it to say that the ragamala proliferated in heterogeneous and haphazard ways throughout this period, from the exquisite to the experimental, the idiosyncratic, the downright pornographic, and the baffling. What on earth is a full ragamala in Hindri Dohas doing in the middle of this late 18th century Persian manual for training civil servants? It's a dustural <laughs> um, in the British Library. What I particularly want to draw your attention to here briefly, though, are the new ways and genres of writing on music that emerged in the period 1748 to 1858. Song collections, tazkiras, biographical anecdotes and genealogies, new treatises on music, especially new ways of writing about rag and tal, works of proto-ethnography, and the very fact that many of these writings were being produced by hereditary musicians. All these were new in the second half of the 18th century. All of these speak to various musical and wider changes in this century of hub people, um, which I probably won't actually get on to. Um, finally, it's worth noting that the period 1780 to 1830 was also when British interest in and patronage of the Indian arts was at its peak. The manuscript and painting collections, private papers and India office records of the colonizers illuminate corners that the brighter lights of the Indian materials sometimes don't reach. Okay, so that's the first obstacle to histories of the ephemeral set aside. The second is a theoretical and methodological issue, one that is, in the final analysis, utterly intractable. What tools of historical analysis could we ever bring to bear on a medium like sound that dematerializes as soon as its vibrations weaken beyond the detection of the human ear? The issue is not even primarily the evanescence of sound itself. 
How can we write about the music of the past when the visceral and emotional experience of being there, of listening, indeed the things that make sound music at all, is gone as soon as the moment is over? To put it in more general terms, how do we write histories of what I've called the ephemeral, of the fleeting intersection of sense and stimulus that constitutes the warp and weft of emotional experience? While scholars of literature or painting may hold in their hands the object of their study, music is intangible out of time, and its full richness and rippling effects are unrecoverable in retrospect. If music is what was sounded and embodied and experienced, then writing on music is always impossible. This is hardly a new conundrum, as the Mughal notable Sher Khan Lodi put it so evocatively in 18, 1691. Sorry. It is impossible to capture the essence of music in pen and ink on the surface of the page. All that remains, he wrote, are the sibilant scratches of a broken pen. Nevertheless, he and many others like him tried their best over and over again to put down in words their own histories of the ephemeral as it pertained to musical experience. What were they trying to do? What were they trying to recapture and evoke? And how did they do it? In seeking to tackle this dilemma, two things come unexpectedly to our aid. The first is that these elite North Indians themselves would have deeply understood and appreciated this sense we have of longing for what has been lost to us. For it was this, what I've called the poignancy of transience, the double-edged sword of delight and love realized in grief and separation from the beloved, that was at the heart of the aesthetic sensibilities early modern <coughs> North Indian men sought to cultivate in their connoisseurship and especially in the majlis, the dedicated gathering of beloved friends together with performers, specifically for listening to music and poetry. And those of you who are aficionados of the Urdu or Persian Ghazal will already know this, but all the objects of connoisseurship and desire in the late Mughal world were things that were perishable, things that died. Sung poetry, music, flowers, scent, wine, natural beauty, and of course, beautiful human beloveds, male and female. These things, beauty and worthiness of appreciation, lay in the tasting of them in the moment, in their intense but fleeting emotional flavor, and in the intensity of emotion engendered by their passing. The second thing that comes to our aid comes from my recent experience of working with a radically different archive, that of the Malay world. Unlike the Indian archive, there are no music-specific writings in Malay before the 20th century at all. Instead, in order to recover historical Malay sound worlds, we have had to trawl the entire range of Malay literature for sonic references, paying close attention to the ways in which literature and language are themselves both deeply sonorous, often designed to be sounded aloud, and alive with information about humanly significant sound worlds. In other work, I've recently taken this as my point of departure for listening more closely to non-musical texts like Mughal historical chronicles, for what they tell us about the multiple resonance of sound in the Mughal world. This has turned out to be a revelatory mode of historical practice. More particularly, it has required a broadening of the field of analysis from music to sound and listening, and thus to auditory history with its focus on human responses to sound. A transfer of historical attention to sound and listening facilitates the segmentation of the concept music into constituent parts, sound, embodied experience, emotional response, aesthetic and ethical discourse, moral and political action. This methodological turn opens up the literary and visual archives to the search for ephemeral experience, because in the inscribed testimony of historical listeners, we have qualified access to all of these components, if really all in the same object. In what follows, I want to separate out what some of these components tell us about experience in the late Mughal world. But first I want to dwell a little bit longer on this breakdown of the concept mu music. There are a few points I wish to note. The first is that the components ripple outwards from sound. Sound stimulates the auditory and somatic senses primarily, but in the context of live performance, sight as well. These in turn lead to an emotional and sometimes an erotic response, which provokes introspection and may lead to action. The second is that the first three are immediate in the moment while discourse and action follow on secondarily, even when they also take place in the moment. But as music is experienced repeatedly, there is a feedback loop of reflection, 
and action that cumulatively reinforces how sound is experienced bodily and affectively. Crucially, in a Mughal context, it's very difficult to disentangle embodied experience from emotional response in the writings of historical listeners because they were considered to be thoroughly interwoven. And it's a somewhat Eurocentric thing to separate them in this way, but important heuristically to understanding the mechanics of how sound operated on the Mughal listener. According to the key interlocutors of the High Mughal period, music was sound that had an effect on, power over the listener. That was what music was for, to affect the listener. Abul Fazl put the tripartite and cyclical sound body response movement most succinctly in his description of what music is and does. I cannot sufficiently describe the wonderful power, nairangi, magic, of this talisman of knowledge. It sometimes causes the beautiful creatures of the harem of the heart to shine forth on the tongue. The melodies then enter through the window of the ear and return to their former seat, the heart, bringing with them thousands of presents. The hearers, according to their insight, are moved to sorrow or to joy. Music is thus of use to those who have renounced the world and to such as still cling to it. Nearly 70 years later, Mirza Roshan Zamir opened his treatise not with praise of God or the prophet, but with the words, music creates effect. When the Qawal sings and claps his hands like the coming together of the feather and the wing, those with mastery of the things of the heart and the soul are rendered moths to the candle by the flame of the voice. From the outset, the proposition of my whole endeavour has been to reveal the praiseworthiness of music and to describe to a degree its effect on the listener, how it is that the gentle singing of the beautiful voice causes dusk to fall, that vengeful snakes are tamed by melancholy harmonies, and that deer faint dead away from listening to heart-stealing music. Here the effect is immediate and powerful and predominantly physiological. It instantly seduces the attuned listener, calms snakes and drops deer. But it's also beautiful and steals the heart. To Fakhirullah, the purpose of music was also to affect the listener. Here it is emotional, to please or charm. And in this most important statement, music's entire essence and its result is to arouse tender sympathy in the heart. Physiological and emotional response were utterly integrated in this move, though philosophically separable. More importantly, the sound body response movement is at the core of the ephemeral moment. Thirdly, you'll notice that although the sound body response movement is in experienced individually and internally, it is also always experienced socially, and therefore, for want of a better word, in public, where the individual experience of singing the sound is on display to others also experiencing the same sound. A singer and a listener were always required, but generally speaking, music and sounded poetry were best experienced among a group of close friends and amongst men of power, in consequence, this made what went on in the majlis inherently moral and political. And finally, there is one component that we don't need to discuss separately, which is the aesthetic and ethical dis discourse of accomplished listeners and performers, because it is this, or the memory of and reflection upon this, that constitutes our documentary sources. In what follows, I hope to think about both the content of my historical listeners' writings and about why they chose to write on music and to ask of their writings and acts two questions. To what extent are we able to capture a sense of lived emotional experience from them and what access do they give us to changing mentalities in this period of regime change in every sense of the word? I'm actually just going to look at sound uh, and at moral and political action, um, partly because I want to tell a story at the end um, to get past the density of some of this. So we're going to start with sound. The humanly significant sounds that were the subject of attentive listening in the late Mughal world were a discrete set of song genres in Persian, Braj, Rehta and Punjabi, set to melodic modes, ragas, in rhythmic cycles, talas, sung by professional vocalists and accompanied by stringed instruments and drums, and in some cases also accompanied by prescribed facial and bodily gestures and dance. The lack of a detailed descriptive written notation system for Hindustani music means that we are never, ever going to be able to recreate the music of the late Mughal and early colonial period as it was performed. 
the precise melodies of compositions were almost never written down before the 1860s, and most of the performance was improvised in any case. But the written records we do have from the 1780s through 1830s tell a remarkable story of radical changes to the musical system due to nascent indigenous modernities at work in Mughal Delhi, Nawabi Lucknow, and Mizami Hyderabad. The access we have to the sounds themselves comes mostly in this period from new treatises on music, in both the oldest palimpsestic style and in unprecedented new works, and from a new genre of writing on music in this period, collections of songs, from the discrete set of pan-regional courtly genres that then as now constitute the Hindustani classical repertoire. I do not use the term modernities lightly. The authors of these texts were fully conversant with earlier musical writings and conscious that what they were doing was new. That the old traditions that needed preserving were under threat or transformation due to enforced increased mobility as Delhi musicians moved across the country and had to compete for the intention of new kinds of patron with novel tastes. But crucially, that the old ways of writing about rag and tal were no longer fit to describe the sound worlds of the late 18th century. What is more, the elite sound worlds these sources describe and the ways they describe them are recognisably modern, showing that the full conceptual foundations of today's Hindustani musical system, supposedly reinvented wholesale during the period of nationalist reform, were already in place by 1800, 60 years before the arch-moderniser of the reform period, Vien Barkhande, was even born. Here I'm just going to focus on changes to the conceptualization of rag. We already know that the Hindustani scale was essentially the same as ours by the 1660s, 12 semitones tuned according to the Pythagorean harmonic proportions with seven principal note names. But in the 17th century, most theorists were far more interested in categorizing the rags according to their extra-musical powers, iconographic forms, and mythical familial relationships, as exemplified in the ragamala sets of six male rags, each with five female raganis. And these were drenched uh, in the Indic aesthetic system of Rus. By the time we get to the 20th century, the ragas are still not classified by their scales, but are categorized in families by characteristic and specifically musical patterns of notes or sound marks that identify each raga, relate them to, uh, uh, to other ragas, and evoke specific emotions. Two things were needed to make the shift from the 17th century to the modern system. A move to using the Balaval scale, equivalent to the Western major scale, as the basic or should scale of Hindustani music, and proved that ragas were placed into families based not on scale or rag-ragnis relationships, but according to musical relationships between their sound marks. Both of these shifts are in evidence in new writing from Lucknow and Delhi in the 1780s and 90s that additionally allow us to hear the ragas in rudimentary performance at least for the first time. First, let's have a look at the way Hulam Raza conceptualizes Ragri Bhairavi in the Usul al Magmati Asafi, written for Asafu Dola of Lucknow in 1793. This is quite technical. He describes Bhairavi in three different sections, each time using a different mode of description. The first is his description of her as a nayaka in the Ragamala tradition, and he lifts this section straight out of the Tofaro Hind verbatim. Bhairavi is the first ragani of Bhairav. She's a seven-note rag, and she should be performed in winter in the morning. Her form in the Ragamala is that of a woman, a beautiful young lady with sparkling eyes, long hair, of yellow colouring and slender form. She's wearing a red angia or breastband and a white sari with a garland of champa flowers around her neck. She sits <coughs> on top of a hill in that place where canoe flowers blossom and worships the lingam of Mahadev playing music on a manjira. In the second section, he describes her in terms of her scalar relationship with her male rag, Bhairav, which according to him uses the variant notes Goma or Flat Ray, that's better. It's the third one from the top. He then notes that Bhairavi, which is also called Abhiri or Ahiri, has a close relationship with Bhairav, except the Shudga of Bhairav is not Bhairavi. The Ga of Bhairav, of Bhairavi is Komo, although it is not incorrect to deploy the Ga of Bhairav in Bhairavi. Although Ghulam Raza does not discuss Bilaval Ragani anywhere, remember we're looking for the Bilaval scale, 
His description of Bhairav and Bhairavi here only works if the pure or basic scale of the Hindustani system in 1793 was already naturalized as the Bilawal scale. And we can follow this up later if you're lost. This scale, along with the flexibility that allows all variant notes to be used at times, is indeed Bhairavi as we know it today. Ghulam Raza's final description of Bhairavi is in a notation system that for the first time ever in a Hindustani treatise has sufficient melodic, rhythmic and syllabic information to be able to reproduce it as music. I'm going to have a go at singing it for you. Um, the syllables are those used in Drupadalab, which in this treatise had esoteric Sufi meaning. I have to pitch this right because otherwise it goes too low. Sorry, that was pretty horrible. That's not at all what it would have sounded like at the time. Um, <laughs> um, so the, were I to sing that properly, the remarkable testimony of the Asul al-Nagmadi Asafi gives us very good idea of what many important ragas sounded like in the 1790s. Strikingly, most of them had already taken their modern forms or very close to them. Secondly, the proof that the rags were already conceptualized as falling into families according to related sound marks and that these were, moreover, the same families into which rags are conceptualized today, lies in Shah Alam II's collection of 700 of his own songs or choice pieces, the Nadarari Shahi, compiled four years after the Asul in 1797. The collection's primary classification is by genre, but within each genre it's organized by rag, but not by rag dragni or scale. Instead, the songs are grouped by sound mark relationships. Each genre section starts with rags from the Bilaval group, followed by strong individual showings by Pedavi and Tori, which shared a scale, a Saran group, a Dhanashri group, the Kalyan, Kamra, and Kedar families are grouped together further down the list, and so forth. That these groupings strike us as patently obvious from the point of view of modern, embodied, and practiced rag theory testifies to the modernity of Shah Alam's musical vision and of the late 18th century rags. Why is this important? Because the characteristic sound marks that identify Bhairavi as Bhairavi or Tori as Tori act upon the listener to provoke very specific emotions, the mood of the rag. If late 18th century rags like Bhairavi already had their modern form, and if they were said then to evoke the same set of feelings and Im images they are supposed to today, which they were, by and large, then we have a good chance of getting a bit closer to the experience of listening to late Mughal rocks. Okay, so I'm going to skip over um, how music affected the body and how it affected the emotions. Um, Otherwise, I'm going to run out of time. But and I and I really, really want to tell you a story which actually embodies uh, a lot of um, the things I want to say about how sound actually operates on the body and the emotions. Um, you will have got some of the picture already, and this last section will add to it. But I just want to summarise um, briefly what I would have talked about in this section. Um, so I would have talked about the reception of sound by the ear and by the somatic system the viscera, the skin, the effect of sonic vibrations on the body, and also uh, conceptions in Persian um, of the senses and how sound affected them, notably in this great passage by Vajid Ali Shah um, from the Sultan Mubarak of 1853. Um, the key point, though, about physiology um, and about um, the relationship between body and mind um, is that in the 17th century, in the Great Mughal period, a detailed and explicit set, whoops, um, of corollaries was drawn up between astrology, the notes of the scale, the elements and the bodily humours in order to explain that it was the raga's sound mark that produced its desired and equally characteristic emotional effect in the listener when played at exactly the right auspicious time. Uh, ordained by astrology. Um, so Meg brought the monsoon rains in um, in the monsoon period. Um, Tori sent listeners into a quiet ecstasy and so on. 
and similarly with rhythm, fast speeds were used to arouse the concupiscible and irascible faculties in the lazy and lethargic, and slow speeds drew out the contemplative and practical intellects. And as the 18th century wore on, the detailed rational explanation behind how the rags affected the body and through it the emotions and mind attenuated um, into some case, say, cases a species of superstition and in others occultism and magic. And you can actually see um, the difference between this quite tantric 16th century um, uh, icon of Arsavari and it's much more kind of aestheticized, uh, very, very late 18th century uh, version, early 19th century version. Um, there's quite a big difference in the power of those two images. However, the time theory and the specific emotional associations with the rugs remained throughout this period um, and could be induced in the listener uh, through the rug sonic form, even though the underpinning uh, science, if you like, um, was no longer understood or poorly understood. Um, so finally, um, I want to talk about moral and political action stemming from musical experience. Um, and because this discussion's already been rather long and dense, and also because it draws the threads quite neatly together, um, I thought I'd just conclude um, simply by telling you a story. Um, it's one that's first told quite early in our time frame, in the first ever standalone task era of musicians, which was written in 1753. Um, and it forms the longest entry, and it was clearly an important anecdote of its time. It's about a musician from the mid-17th century. The man here on the left, dressed in pink, Hushal Khan Kalawand. Like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, everything in this story is based on original sources. Where truth lies, who can say? So listen closely, and I'll begin. Once upon a time in Hindustan, there lived a great musician. His name was Hushal Khan. And at the height of his magnificence, he was chief Kalawand to the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan. His father, Lal Khan, had been taken as a boy to the greatest musician of them all, Tan Singh, who had discerned such potential in him that he gave him to his son, Bilas Khan, to train and set him even further along the path to greatness by marrying him to his own granddaughter. Out of love and gratitude, Lal Khan made himself into the perfect disciple. He never sought to aggrandize himself, but always presented himself simply as Bilas Khan's shagird, Quietly and without fuss, he mastered the subtleties of the beautiful voice, of strength of technique and of Tansen style, such that even the pundits agreed he fulfilled all the virtues laid down in the Shastras. He chose never to compose in his own name, but instead perfected the singing of Tansen's trumpet compositions, to the point that even his rivals admitted that it was as if he had imbibed them directly from Tansen himself. By the time he reached maturity, Lal Khan's singing was esteemed by his contemporaries as unequalled, and upon Bilas Khan's death, Shah Jahan bestowed upon him the mantle of chief musician and inheritor of Tansen's place at the emperor's court, and a title, Gunasamudra, the Ocean of Virtues. Lal Khan had four sons, Hushal Khan and his three brothers, and they in their turn learned Tansen's tradition at their father's knee. From an early age, the boys sang Drupad at Shah Jahan's court with their father and other great poet singers of the time like Jagannath Kabirai and Rang Khan, accompanied by the best Kalawant Binkars and Rabadias like Sarasbin and Sughasen. Hushal Khan and his brother Bisram would stand one on each side of their father on the Kalim between the throne and play the tambura to support Dal Khan while he sang the lengthy unaccompanied Alap. Then Hushal and Bisram would join him to sing the Drupad composition their youthful voices increasing the strength and power of their father. But as Lao Khan grew old and gradually gave over to his sons the honour of singing the Alab, it became clear that of all his brothers it was Hushal who was the true singer. In a gloriously ornamented voice arising from the clearest of throats, he articulated the most obscure rules of the rag, systematically exploring all the ways of ascending and descending in a virtuosic display of rigorous organisation that combined taste with grace all the while appearing to sing without effort, eschewing inelegant gestures and ugly grimaces. It was to Hushal that Lal Khan entrusted the full secrets of Tansen's style and repertoire, including the esoteric law passed down in the family of music's supernatural powers, 
which rags were empowered to cause the sun to set or snakes to be charmed, fire to break out or rain to fall or gazelles to faint dead away from listening to heart-stealing music. The potent mystical import of the syllables or huruf used in Drupadalab and how to channel those powers through mastery of musical technique. By the time he reached maturity, Hoshal had become the skillful master of his age, being particularly renowned for his perfection in the moderate tempo droppets of Kansen. But Hoshal went further than his father to embrace the discursive aspects of the musical arts, shastric learning and the art of composing songs. Hoshal's own compositions were considered remarkable for their mastery of the full range of styles and tempos and became renowned in later centuries for their technical precision, subtlety of ideas and correctness of style. He wrote songs in the praise of his illustrious majesty that delighted the emperor's heart so much that yearly he was weighed in the diwan against rupees and showered with them as a reward. When Lal Khan died in 1654, it was only natural then that his most accomplished son, Khushal, should take on the mantle of chief musician, and Shah Jahan duly bestowed upon him his father's title, Gunasamudra, and gave to him the place of Kansen in the royal diwan. By this time, Hushal was a mature musician, drilled since childhood in the ways of the court. He knew his job to be vitally important, if relatively straightforward, to channel the power of the natural and supernatural words in the service of the emperor, to use different rags and tempos to alter the moods of the court and bring emotional and physiological balance to the polity, and to sing the praise of the emperor and reflect his glory and power back to him in an auspicious circle of virtue. Like the figure of Orpheus, calming the lion and the lamb with his lira di braccio inlaid in the wall high above Shah Jahan's throne, a talisman of the emperor's divinely ordained Solomonic power to enforce peace between the different constituents of his political realm, so Hushal Khan's role was to harness musical power to bring harmony to the emperor's court. Straightforward though it was, this job was also a difficult one psychologically because to be a vessel of power on someone else's behalf requires the virtues of self-effacement and humility. Such qualities tend to be in short supply in musicians, fated as they are for their worldly talents and showered in riches for their virtuosity. For in the moment of performance, great musicians harness and wield extraordinary power, and the temptation is great, and not always resisted, to deploy that power for their own gain. Hushal Khan's new responsibility as chief musician and heir to Tansen weighed heavily upon him. His job was to be a conduit of imperial power, not a political player in his own right. But although in talent he was more than a match for his ancestors, in virtue he was not his father's equal. He had fallen more than a little in love with the adulation of the court and with the riches his talents commanded, and he gave in to the temptation to intrigue in what turned out to be the most decisive political turning point of 17th century India, the struggle between the princes Darashoko and Aurangzeb for the Mughal throne. One day around this time, Shah Jahan's Amir Umura, Ali Maran Khan, was at court. Ali Maran was an Irani military commander who deserted the Safavids and went over to the Mughals in 1638, whereupon he was given the highest mansab of any nobleman, commanded the army, and on a more personal level, the trust and friendship of his new sovereign, Shah Jahan. On this particular occasion, the emperor asked his faithful friend, in your opinion, which one of the royal princes will seize the kettle drum of the sultanate after me? In other words, which one would become emperor with the exclusive right of sounding the Nobat drum, the great sonic signifier of sovereignty throughout the Indian Ocean? Now, Ali Mardan was a canny operator. He knew that, quite ill-advisedly, Shah Jahan favoured Dara as the next emperor, but that speaking out against his favourite would violate both the rules of etiquette and his duty as Shah Jahan's servant. So instead, he prophesied that he who is closest to Murshid Kuli Khan, son of Ahwal Khan, will be successful. Murshid Kuli Khan had also been at the Safavid court and had come to India with Ali Mardan as one of his most trusted lieutenants. The emperor generally placed complete faith in Ali Mardan's judgment, and so he assigned Murshid Kuli to Dara Shukur's entourage and instructed the prince to spend time and effort befriending him. But Dara was immature and pampered, and far from respecting his father's advice, gave excessively burdensome orders to Murshid Kuli and treated him with disdain. Very soon, Murshid Kuli began to avoid Dara altogether, seeking the companionship of Ali Mardan. Meanwhile, Prince Aurangzeb, whom Shah Jahan had made viceroy of the Deccan came to visit Ali Mardan 
Unlike Dara, who behaved towards Ali Maradan and others of his father's circle with enmity and arrogance, Aurangzeb made a point of cultivating friendships with Shah Jahan's chief confidants, and Ali Maradan was already inclined to his cause. Knowing Murshid Kuli's renowned talents as a revenue administrator as well as a warrior, Aurangzeb decided to enlist Ali Maradan's help in getting Murshid Kuli transferred to his entourage. Aurangzeb knew that because of the poor relations he had with his father, Shah Jahan, the emperor would not release Murshid Kuli if he asked him himself. So he asked Ali Mardan to petition on his behalf. Aurangzeb's request put Ali Mardan in a dilemma. If he agreed to plead Aurangzeb's cause, as gut instinct suggested would be most sensible, he would be seen to manip be manipulating his own prophecy to Aurangzeb's benefit, and thus openly defying the reigning monarch. He accepted Aurangzeb's brief, but try as he might, he couldn't quite light upon the right moment to present the petition at court. Serendipitously, Ali Mardan met Khushal Khan during an intimate drinking party. He laid the whole issue before Khushal, who instantly perceived an opportunity to enrich himself. Khushal said to Ali Mardan, if you give me one lakh rupees, I promise I can easily accomplish the formal release of Murshid Kuli Khan into Aurangzeb's service. All you need to do is attend court, wait for my signal, and then present the petition. So Ali Mardan left arrangements in Khushal's capable hands. At that time, it was customary for Khushal and Bisram, according to the orders of Tansen, to sing at a distance of 10 <coughs> forearms length from each other, standing on opposite corners of the Kilim between Shah Jahan's throne. One day, just before Noruz, Khushal and Bisram took their hereditary places and began to clear their throats in preparation for singing. Summoning up his courage, Khushal thought for a moment and remembered what the theorists said about channeling the power of the ragas, that a singer was like a necromancer, Amil, and the melodic form of the rag was like a magical formula that when pronounced properly and in the right order invokes a spirit, Muvakal, that spirit was the tangible effect, Tasir, of the rag on the listener manifested in the experiential moment as a personification. Hushal cast one swift glance for luck at Orpheus, the necromancer who with his song pacified the guard dogs of Hades and brought Eurydice back from the dead and embarked upon a slow, gentle alap in Ragni Tori. As he sang through the mood of gentle love and adoration, Tori gradually took on her personified shape until she stood before the assembly, a delicate white woman wearing a white angir and sari with camphor flowers and saffron on her body, standing in a forest alone, playing the bean and pacifying the gazelles by her feet, who listened with sheer joy and delight to her playing, eventually succumbing to ecstatic insensibility. The emperor's attention was rapt by the extreme loveliness of this music. By the time Khushal and Bisram finished the Drupad composition, the effect on Shah Jahan was total. The whole universe seemed to slow dreamily down around him as he listened intensely with the ear of his heart. Noticing this effect on the emperor, the great nobleman also became silent and still in the great hall of the Diwan. Now was Khushal's moment. Imperceptibly, he gave the signal to Ali Mardan that he should present the petition for Murshid Kuli's release to Shah Jahan. As the emperor was in an ecstatic reverie under the power of Khushal's spell, he was in no fit state to read anything and stamped the petition without looking at it. Ali Mardan sent it straight to the Khalakhana, the robing room, and Murshid Kuli duly presented himself there the following day to receive his Khilatic release. The Daroha of the Khilakhana presented the petition to Shah Jahan, who until this point was still oblivious as to what had happened the previous day. Taken aback, he whispered to Ali Mardan, I don't recall giving permission for Murshid Kuli Khan's release. The nobleman directed his attention to the place where he'd stamped it. Horrified, the emperor realized he'd approved the petition without reading it, but also that he could not reverse the order without admitting that his attention had been so overwhelmed by the power of Khushal's song that he'd made a terrible error. Faithfully, therefore, and with dread in his heart, the emperor authorized the passing of a hilat of leave to Murshid Kuli Khan. Murshid Kuli swiftly became Aurangzeb's fast friend and constant companion in the Deccan, and Aurangzeb treated him with respect and kindness until his death during the War of Succession with Darashuko, when Murshid Kuli was killed, securing Aurangzeb's victory at the Battle of Dharmat in April 1658. Thus was Ali Mardan's prophecy realized and both names forever memorialized by Shah Jahan's triumphant successor. But what of Khushal and his reward for supernaturally bringing this prophecy to pass? 
when Shah Jahan realized Khrushal's and Bisram's instrumental role in cheating his favorite son of his future, and that too out of purely venal motives, he stripped them of their positions as chief Kalawans, banning them from ever again standing and singing in the place of Tansen at the foot of his throne. Thus ends the first recension of this story by Inayat Khan Rasif in 1753. Distressed at this turn of events, Khushal and Bisram and their accompanists threw their instruments into coffins, nailed down the leads, and carried them into the streets of Shah Jahanabad, wailing and crying, Rag is dead, you have killed Rag. Marching towards the Jiroku Darshan, their powerful voices reached fever pitch until they stood below the place where the emperor sat to receive petitions. Rag is dead, they cried, louder and louder. Rolling his eyes and looking down over the parapet, Shah Jahan... Oh, hang on. Wrong emperor. Different story. Wrong ending. Or is it? Let's rewind. Shah Jahan removed Khushal and Bisram from their hereditary place. But Aurangzeb, a great connoisseur of Hindustani music, took no time in restoring them to their former positions, showering special attention on Khushal, whom Aurangzeb's governor of Delhi, Fakhrullah, described as being matchless among the Kalans. When Alamgir reached his 50th solar birthday in 1668, becoming thereby an old man, he decisively turned his face against the pleasures and diversions of his youth and turned his attention towards the hereafter, as everybody knows. At this point, he instructed Khushal and Bisram to continue attending upon him at court, but no longer to sing in his presence. Nonetheless, for many years even after this, he continued to bestow considerable largesse annually on Khushal and the other Kalawans and dispersed Khalats to Bisram's son, Bufat Khan, and his brother, also called Khushal, on the occasion of Bisram's death in 1671. Here ends today's story of Khushal Khan Kalawan. The moral of the story, as told by Inayat Khan Rasik, was directed to musicians who might be tempted to get involved in politics, as they all too frequently did in the 18th century. Only he who does not put his foot outside of his kalim will earn the royal mandate. But frankly, the story says far more about the overwhelming power of musical experience in Mughal life and thought, and about the personal foibles of Shah Jahan. If it were my story to tell, and my moral to give, it would be this. Don't sign anything without reading the fine print. <laughs> That's it. <laughs>